0: The work I'm talking about in both projects is really around this notion of gap. And I'm, I'm, I, I'm indebted to Kristen Gunkel, who created this, uh, this slide. Uh, I'll have to ask her why it's cork. The, the whole thing apparently rides on cork, so <laughs> which may have implications. I'm not sure. Uh, but I think it applies to both projects. This is a teacher education version. Which means on one side of the gap, so-called gap, we have university courses, on the other side we have school classrooms, we have teacher educators, and we have classroom teachers. And often this gap is framed in terms of the difference between the theoretical and the practical, but at least there is a difference between the generic and the particular. I think it's a better way to look at it, because methods must necessarily be about classrooms, uh, whereas a classroom teacher has a particular classroom, so the particular is foreground for the classroom teacher. And what we usually do is imagine a bridge between these two worlds, and we let our students... Kristen's good at this. Let's, uh, let's our students sort of go across that bridge alone. Um, and when we find that they don't do what we would advocate for them to do in our courses, we often argue that we need to do more over here. We need to, we need to, to be more intense to do this better. Uh, and when we find that when they come back to us and say, well, but the teachers we're working with over here, between two of these, uh, don't necessarily agree with what you're saying. We say, ah, see, we have to be even stronger, okay? We have to inoculate our students against the viruses they might pick up over here, okay? And that'll solve our problem. We've been doing that for a long time. I've been in the business a long time, and the, the argument hasn't changed for any. And what I'd like to talk about today is this side. What can be done over here that makes sense uh, for the the teachers that we're sending across that bridge? And in fact, in the Beyond Bridging project, we call it that because we're trying to blend those worlds. So there isn't a bridge anymore, that the worlds interact regularly and fairly intensely but it also requires some understanding of what classroom teachers are doing when they're doing the practical work of teaching and some respect for the complexity of that kind of work. Our argument in Beyond Bridging is that unless you begin to see what's advocated in the teacher education courses, unless you begin to see those frameworks as solutions to practical problems on this side of the the so-called gap, you will never engage in the practice necessary to learn them because you won't see them as useful. And so the task is to somehow figure out how to allow those worlds to share discourses so that, in fact, the students can recognize what we're talking about over here does occur here. It may have been occurring anyway, but they didn't know how to see it because the forms are not the forms that we were using as examples in our courses. It also enables us to bring an awful lot of images and and videos from the classrooms to our methods courses so they can begin to see that these methods aren't just for classes out there somewhere, but are for classes they see every day. Uh, We also have joint sessions with mentor teachers and pre-service teachers and university teacher educators all together, working on common tasks so that they're engaging in the discourses side by side, all at the same time. And we begin to understand how those discourses work. We also are finding a lot of other kind of side effects. We're finding, for instance, when the classroom teachers not only know what we do in the courses, which often they never did, but they also know us and are willing, therefore, to try things in their classroom that reflect what we're trying to do in our coursework. So there's a huge effect occurring there, uh, in part because my colleagues are quite charming and, and, and vivacious and so they're quite willing to try to please them. Uh, but, but the work is very complicated. Logistically, it's very complex to put everybody in the same place at the same time. Teachers are busy. Uh, they don't necessarily have opportunities to do this. Uh, the discourses are often hard to unpack, so that the mentor teachers start talking to each other in very rich ways from our perspective, but it just goes right across the top of the heads of the, of the pre service teachers who don't understand the language. And so we have to stop and unpack that language. We also discovered that if the tasks we do in joint sessions are grounded too much here, then the pre-service teachers wait to be told and don't engage in the kinds of reasoning you need in order to be able to make sense of these situations. So our outcome is not to teach them a set of behaviors that are immune to situations, and therefore can never be erased. It is rather to teach them how to make sense of issues and problems in this side of the gap so that they can begin to use these tools that we think are very valuable to begin to address these issues. And it's not a particularly easy kind of uh, of exercise for them to do. now, I want to talk most of, that's that's sort of the Beyond Bridging project, and there's a lot of things I can talk about in that. But essentially, the, the, the mentality is that it's a sense-making process, not just behavior, and that it's about learning how to engage in discourses, hybrid discourses. We use this notion of third space, which is not unfamiliar to this group. Uh, although it's a slippery and difficult concept, it keeps it keeps sliding out from under us, <laughs> but, so we, but we, we, we think some idea that it isn't a matter of just bringing people together, but it's a matter of being able to bring them together in ways that stimulate conversation about the, the tasks of teaching uh, and how these frameworks can be brought to bear on those tasks, and it's, it's, been, a, it's been a rich experience. The work I'm doing in Leiden is, is a, a, a similar bridging kind of thing, uh, but it has more to do with explaining rationality of teachers and how teaching gets done. And I want to let me shift to to where that came from. As I mentioned, it it started with this notion of practicality. Uh, the article when we first wrote it up and sent it out for publication, kept getting sent back to us, rejected because it wasn't very practical, which, which I, we thought was very funny. We had, we had a lot of laughs over that. We finally got it published, and we, I'll talk a little bit about it. It's a, it's a rather informal study, but what we, we were interested in is what teachers meant when they said, that's not very practical. So we looked at a number of discourses, we talked to a number of teachers, we tried to piece together what are the features that are that mark something as practical. Because, similar to the argument about if you can't make sense with these frameworks, you'll never use them. If you can't, if it isn't practical, they won't do it. <laughs> and so what did they mean when they're saying practical? And there were three things that seemed to pop up. One was instrumentality. Practical things first had to be procedures. If it's an idea, we may agree with you, we may, we may think that's wonderful, but we don't know what to do with it. So how do you translate that into a set of procedures that can actually be done? Uh, Okie Lee, I recently gave a presentation in Arizona, and she's working very much with the, with the new science standards, and that's one of the things she's trying to do with those. He's saying, if you want these standards to be put in place, you have to create examples of what that means. What would it look like if you were actually doing this? So so instrumentality picks up that notion of, what does it look like if I were to do this? Congruence has to to really say, what does it look like if I have to do it in my classroom, (laughs) which adds that local dimension. Does it fit with what I'm doing, with how I relate to my students? You're asking me, for instance, to confuse my students, but I don't want to confuse my students. I was always confused, (laughs) particularly in math. And so I don't think I want to do that without understanding what, what that might look like, both procedurally, but also how it might fit the circumstances and what shifts and changes would occur at that level. I recently returned from China, and one of the things that struck me is that familiarity conserves energy. (laughs) It was so unfamiliar, it was very difficult to cross the street uh, to do a lot of things in China because it's a very different set of structures. So so congruence had to do with how well does it fit, and, and fit my circumstances. And finally, cost is how much do I have to invest of my limited time and resources in order to get this done? Uh, If you're asking me to take 40 hours to plan 10 minutes of instruction, I'm not so sure that's practical. If you you reverse those numbers and say I can spend 10 minutes of planning for 40 hours of instruction, that sounds pretty practical to me. So, uh, now, what... What has helped me working with Fred and Hannah is to realize that this is, this is essential to all practical work. That whatever your practical work is, you have to figure out how to do it, how it fits the circumstances, and how much time and energy do I have to invest given the limited resources. You know, I have to do it tomorrow or I have to do it next week. So anytime we're doing something practical, we are actually doing these kinds of things. So it's not, Unique to teachers. Everybody doing practical work has to do this kind of thinking or, or reasoning about. It. Now, what Fred, uh, and I'll talk a little more about this later, but what Fred and Hannah bring to this is, is Simon's notion of bounded rationality. Uh, and I'll talk more about that later, and I think you'll see how that fits this kind of structure. Those of you who are familiar with the sort of things I write about, uh, Part of the reason why practicality makes sense is that teachers work in very complex settings. Um, There's demands on the teachers to create activities and programs of action to keep things moving. Um, And this requires considerable investment on teachers' parts to start up a year and to get it moving. Uh, there is a lot of, there's a need to design and install and maintain tasks because there's often pressures against certain kinds of tasks. Uh, they also, by the way, and this is something I meant to mention or underscore earlier, pre-service teachers have very definite notions of what it is to teach. <laughs> My hunch is most of them have solved that problem before they start the program. Uh, and they see our courses as obstacles between them and what they really know how to do already. In fact, a colleague of mine, Carol Weinstein, some of you may know her work in classroom management. Uh, Carol's husband was a, um, a psychologist who studied perceptions of risk. If you ask a population of people how likely it is given people like you how likely it is that you're going to get cancer, that you're going to be injured in a car accident, et cetera, et cetera. And what he found was a consistent optimism bias. Okay, it's not going to happen to me. I know that smoking can cause problems, but not for me. It's okay. And every population he's asked this question to gets this optimism bias that keeps showing up. So she asked student teachers... What kind of problems do teachers have? And they listed a number of things. And then she said, will you have these problems? And they all said no. Not all of them, but most of them said no. I figured it out. Now, I could imagine, she didn't follow them into student teaching, but I could imagine some traumas based on that (laughs) optimism bias once you crash into the realities of being in those rooms. It certainly happened to me. Uh, So we have these kinds of demands, often invisible to the student in the class, but very visible to the teacher. So being a student doesn't necessarily help you be a teacher. Uh, And then each of these environments have histories. They have multiple agendas at the same time. Um, And that what you see when you watch teacher is a solution to all of these intertwining problems so don't assume it's just because the teacher wants to behave that way or only knows how to behave that way it means that there is a particular set of circumstances that has been negotiated that allow this event to continue for whatever hundred and some 180 some days a year so that's a that's an incredible accomplishment to do that now Fred has done, Fred and Hanna have done a lot of work with looking at these lesson segments and goal systems, and I'll talk a little bit about their work. What they, what they do, they have the teachers construct these, uh, and you can't read all of this, but I'll kind of give you an overview of it. What, what they basically ask a teacher is, how do you teach a lesson? And they give you blocks typically. So I explain the theory, the students answer some lower-order questions, I present the research question, I present methods, I have them collect some data and use the theory to explain their findings. Okay. Now what they know is that these are embedded in a set of goal systems. I do this because and so when you, begin, when you go to this level, you want the students to understand the theory. I want to cover the content. I have a number of things, including I have to control my class. These, so they have multiple agendas, not a single agenda, with, uh, with a lot of embedded goal structures, some of which conflict. So, for instance, in this particular goal structure, students are motivated and explaining in the theory conflict because they're not terribly motivated during this talk. Okay. So what Fred will do is say, okay, you already know how to pose a question. Why don't you move that here? Because you already know how to do it. You can even use the textbook for example. You don't have to make up some problem out of space. You can actually use a problem that's in the book. And let's see what happens. And what they find then is a reconfiguration of these goal systems. This teacher begins to go, wow. Particularly on this one, by the way. We often find when we ask them to do that, motivation goes way up. They'll often argue well, the students can't do that. They're shocked when they realize the students in fact can do that. So there's a number of ways you can begin to modify what they already know how to do into what they might be able to try to do without saying, oh, change everything you're doing and adopt this whole new framework, which often is the message they hear when we say you need to teach, you need to use an ambitious teaching strategy to get the students deeply engaged in the content. Wait a minute, where does that, how do I, first, you know, what's the instrumental value of that? How does it fit what I'm doing, which is what this is a picture of, how much is that going to take in terms of time and energy to do this? And what Fred and Hannah have been able to say is, yeah, not very much. We can tell you a procedure. We can talk about things you already know how to do. Uh, and we can see how it works. Uh, and it won't take you a terrible amount of time to do that. And I, they're, what they're finding in, in this kind of goal structure work is that innovations can become practical because you're bridging. Now, it's done at a fairly intense level of individual work. By the way, the teachers create these, that's really important. They just ask questions, and the teachers fill it in until they run out of things to say, and then they just map them. But the teachers use little post it notes to say, oh, well, I think they kind of, and they draw the lines. We don't invent these for them, they invent these themselves. They like it actually. They find it. Wow, that was interesting. I never realized that's why I do that. So it's very it's 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 good feedback for them. Uh, but it's a it's a really interesting way to begin. Now you can then take the innovation, by the way, and you can block it out the same way, which means you have to translate the innovation into a set of instrumental procedures and, 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 and lesson segments, and they can begin to say, oh wow, look, I do a lot of those things already. So congruence goes up, and they can begin to see how it can be done. Now, sometimes people complain about this as being a little too intense, that it ought to be faster, we ought to be able to speed it up. And uh, there are some ways you can do it. But I read an article recently in the in the New Yorker magazine. I think the title was Slow Ideas. The author is the is the guy who wrote the book about checklists in medicine. And his 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 argument was Some things in medicine are adopted very quickly, like anesthesia didn't take very long. Doctors didn't like to hear patients scream, although some resisted, said that was important. Uh, If you have a a notion that disease is a punishment for wrongdoing in your life, you probably don't want to give anesthetic. Uh, But other things, like washing your hands, took a much longer time because there was no immediate effect that you could see. Germs? What are you talking about? <laughs> and then he traces this through a number of practices, including uh, uh, sort of uh, what midwife practices in developing nations and what, what they know how to do they don't necessarily do for a number of reasons, many of which look like practicality. There's no instrumental program to do this. There's no protocol. Doesn't fit. There are cultural traditions around these things, um, so it takes a long time for those. So, so the idea of quickly changing <laughs> is probably a myth. You can you can fake yourself out sometimes, but I don't think it's very. I don't think it's 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 necessarily a healthy way to go. Uh, we're doing some work now on heuristics. Um, We've just finished a paper we sent to the educational researcher called um, Simple Heuristics for Complex Work. And the argument that we're making, largely based on people that have followed up some of Herb Simon's early work on bounded rationality, is that work gets done in complex settings using heuristics. Uh, those, I assume baseball is reasonably familiar in England asked me about cricket, I wouldn't be able to say that. Um, If the ball is hit high in the air, okay, how do you make sure you're under it when it comes down? Now you could calculate the initial force, the trajectory, the wind speed, and do a series of differential equations in your head while you're running toward wherever you think the ball is coming down. You won't make it. (laughs) So that kind of information, while available, to somebody at some point is not readily available. It's not fast and frugal. So they use a gaze heuristic, which means you lock on the ball and you keep the same angle. And if you can do that, you'll be there when it comes down. That's all you need to know. Now sometimes in our education, teacher education courses, we teach about wind speeds and trajectories. But we don't teach very much about how to lock onto the ball. <laughs> And then we're surprised that our students don't readily adopt our brilliant ideas because they don't know what the instrumental value is. So the idea of heuristics is is an important way to begin to think how you do complex work, but it bridges knowing a practice and getting it in place. You can know a practice and you can practice it in the laboratory, but to put it in place in a classroom requires heuristics. So the article, I hope, makes it. We'll see. Uh, If it doesn't, we'll try again. Uh, There's one heuristic I talked about that's based on Jack Kunin's work and some work that's currently being done in the Netherlands using eye-track technology to track experienced and novice teachers looking at classrooms. And I call it the the group-focused gaze heuristic that teachers use. When you're first day before a class... What do you look at? There's a lot going on. And what we found in, and both based on how Kuhnin would argue, but also in terms of these eye motion studies, is that experienced teachers scan the room looking for instances that might have a group impact. So they'll track a student for a very short period of time to see whether what that student's doing is having any impact on anybody else. I was once watching a class, (laughs) a student teacher, and there's this girl walking around. And the the student in front of me turned around and said, don't pay any attention to her. She's crazy. I said, thank you. I appreciate that. But what it helped me see is that nobody was paying any attention to her. Had the teacher went over and argued with her about sitting down, everyone would have paid attention to that. So she was not misbehaving in the sense that her behavior had no consequences for anybody. And so the teacher ignored it. I talked to the teacher after, and she said, yeah, we're working with her. And in a few weeks, they had her at least sitting down most of the time. But she wasn't misbehaving. So if, if, you, if you imagine a kind of group-focused gaze heuristic, that's not important. I can ignore that. Novices, on the other hand, would lock on to a student and watch that student ignoring all sorts of other things going on until they got so loud that it's too late. So the the group focus gauge heuristic is really important for learning what to look for when you're watching a classroom. I often have my student teachers say, you told me to scan the class, but what am I supposed to see? (laughs) Well, lock on something. (laughs) Now, as you have experience with a group, that becomes a very efficient because you know there's about two places or three or whatever that you have to watch. So you can scan quickly and say, oh, yeah, okay. Everything's either normal or everything is, I mean, you move toward it or whatever. I had had a teacher, a a, a, a mentor teacher uh, one time who walked in front of the class and said, Jimmy, move over here. And Jimmy did one of those, what did I do, kind of looks. But he moved. This was right at that, you know, 10 seconds at the beginning. So I went up after her and said, what did you do? And she said, oh, I couldn't see Jimmy. And I know I had to. (laughs) And I went, you're right. I've seen Jimmy in other classrooms. You have to watch Jimmy pretty closely. But, But when you do that, you don't have to then shout and scream at Jimmy. Because Jimmy now is behaving quite appropriately for the circumstances. A student teacher didn't know that. And after his first lesson, when he got a couple of limbs chewed off, um, <laughs> the cooperating teacher said, but you have to like kids. And he said, I did yesterday. <laughs> 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 I just <cracked> <laughs> She had no analytic knowledge of what she did because it was a heuristic. It was just, boom, she, she just did it. And it looked, they look like instincts sometimes but they really aren't. They're they're developed ability to read just as when you read a text, you do all sorts of things that you're not aware of and very difficult to tell somebody what you're doing. It takes a lot of analysis to do that. Anyway, that's the sort of work we're trying to do now and develop this notion of, of what are the heuristics, both design heuristics This is how I need to set up lessons in order to have an opportunity. So there's a movement, for instance, in the United States now with Pam Grossman and others talking about practice-based or practices as the focus of teacher education, which I think is quite appropriate. Um, But what they don't talk about is that those practices seem to presuppose a lesson context in which they're useful. So if you're talking about practices like leading a lively discussion and helping students work together and all this sort of thing, but the tasks are basically to memorize and regurgitate information, those will not be useful. They don't have a place there. So you're implying that you're creating a task structure or a task space in which students will benefit from talking to each other or from sharing or working together. And so we have to put those practices in some sort of design context. And that's what Fred's working on in terms of creating design heuristics. He has one friend. I'll just, I should let him talk about this. But let me talk quickly about it. We often talk. There's a whole movement in the Netherlands to, to diversify and instruction. And, but there's no, there's no heuristics for doing it. So he's developed one. If you start with a whole task, a complicated sort of task for the students, but give no support, pretty soon you'll find out which students need support, and you already know how to do that because your lecture that you used to give is just essentially a support for doing the task anyway. So you have all that information already at hand. You can even put it on slips of paper and hand it out. Say, "Oh, yeah, you're having trouble getting." Okay. Think about this. And so you immediate, immediately you're diversifying levels of support for students. Um, and then that creates a whole set of, of, of trajectories for the teacher then to build on that kind of differentiation. But it's a very simple heuristic. Uh, it doesn't require you to redesign your lessons to, to get information about every student in your class. Uh, what it just basically says is some can do it, some can't. You don't necessarily know, and it may differ for different tasks, but here's a way to think about uh, making support appropriate to the circumstances. So, yep, but you have to create a task first in which there is differential need for support, and then you can begin to provide it. Um, that's the sort of work that they're doing, and I find it, I find it very exciting in the sense that they're taking practicality seriously and saying, okay, this, this, is not, this is not Neanderthal thinking. This is, in fact, practical thinking. And people who do practical work, regardless of the circumstances, are going to be engaged in the same kind of thinking about how do I get it done uh, in, a, in a way that fits my circumstances and that I can have the time and resources to get done. So... Um, Sense making. I think I've I've anticipated most of my slides here. Uh, let, let me. This is the this is the beyond bridging notion that you have to see them as tools. If you don't see them as tools, you won't use them. This is. This is fairly. I mean, Luis Mole is one of my colleagues, so I know a little bit about Vygotsky, and so uh, he's uh, you know this sort of notion of tool use is really important in these settings. But I want I to, we we're writing an article right now based on some case studies of a science uh, innovation. Uh, and our, our notion from what we've done with analyzing the case studies is that what the teachers were doing was perfectly reasonable in a practical world. It made absolute sense. doesn't mean it's perfectly rational. Nobody's perfectly rational but it's perfectly reasonable to do it that way. doesn't mean they're always right, um, but it does mean that what they're doing makes sense in that context. And so if you want to influence the context, make sense in that context. And that's the challenge for teacher educators and for designers is to figure out how can I make sense there? Um, and that's, because we are forced into a kind of generic mode because we teach all classrooms or we design a curriculum for all classrooms, it's very difficult for us to take on that extra burden of saying, how do you make sense with this tool in those contexts? So I'd like to leave you with that message that, that, that much of what we see being done is not, is not something that should be stamped out or overcome or inoculated against, it's perfectly reasonable in a practical world. If we want our students or our teachers to adopt new ways of doing the work, then we have to be perfectly reasonable in a practical world, okay, great, thank you.